All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both, one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise up by his power, raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You know, in Genesis, we find Joseph as one of those rare characters in the Bible who consistently seems to be a model of faithfulness. Uh, So you might remember the story of Joseph. He was sold into slavery by his brothers, and then he was cast into a pit and left for dead before he was sold into slavery. And it was when he was uh, sold into slavery that he later ended up in Potiphar's house, who was uh, an Egyptian leader. Uh, He was chief of the Egyptian guard. Uh, He was a man of great power and influence. And and Joseph found himself in his home, and as Joseph consistently does, uh, he found himself in leadership in this home. And he found himself in a high position. Uh, he was caring for, tending to the personal affairs of Potiphar day by day. And uh, it just so happened that Potiphar had a wife who was in this home. And she found Joseph to be handsome. Uh, now, I don't know if you've ever seen a guy that's, that's handsome, but um, it must be a pretty big deal for Joseph to be handsome because the Bible says Joseph is handsome. So, uh, guys, we're out of luck if we think we can compete with that. So Joseph is a handsome guy. Potiphar's wife finds him attractive. We find that she is day by day asking if uh, he will lie with her. And he continues to tell her no. Now his rationale is twofold. The first is Potiphar's been so good to me. There's no way that I could go against his kindness. Uh, But the second reason is probably the the greater ground. And he says in verse 9 of Genesis 39, how can I do this wickedness and sin against God? In other words, my, my sin that you're asking me to commit is actually not just about Potiphar who has treated me well, but it is against God himself. Well, we find later that he is alone with her in the house one day. She traps him. She grabs him by his garment. And in verse 12, we are told that he left his garment in her, head, or in her hand and he fled and got out of the house. That's the way that Joseph dealt with sexual temptation and sexual immorality. He ran. Now, it costed him a lot. Potiphar's wife charged him with trying to come into her and sleep with her, and he went to prison for it. But Joseph literally fled sexual temptation and sexual immorality. But, you know, we live in a post-sexual revolution culture. And, and, And sometimes I wonder if our culture would actually ask a question here, should Joseph run? Should Joseph run when he's faced with this opportunity for sexual immorality, when sexual temptation comes in upon him, are we being a little bit legalistic? Are we actually imposing some kind of godlike 
handlebars or, or, or rather um, uh, uh, chains upon him that are restraining him from the kind of joy that he really wants and could have. See, Joseph here poses us in our culture with a really important question. Should Joseph have run? Now, you'll remember the sexual revolution in the 60s. Uh, it was led by men like Hugh Hefner, who argued that he was fighting against his parents' puritanical kind of view towards sex and sexuality. And, and so he wanted to, to come against that with a kind of sexual freedom or liberation. So he would have been saying, I want to, to introduce a people to liberty and freedom where they have been restrained. Well, 50 years later, in an article on June 15, 2018 from the Washington Examiner, Mary Eberstadt wrote about this revolution that he and others led. And he said, you know, she said, I'm not trying to make any kind of theological or God point here. I just want to look at the facts of what's happened since that revolution and evaluate whether or not this thing was really freeing and good for us. Now, she gave five incontestable truths about the sexual revolution that were not good But she said a number of things along the way. And I just want to expose you to a few of these things that I think are helpful for us in thinking through this rallying for a revolution and freedom. This is what she writes 50 years later. The explosion of sexual activity thanks to things like contraception and abortion, which were a result of the sexual revolution, has been accompanied by levels of divorce increased, cohabitation and abortion Those increases have been never before seen in history like during this period. Broken families and the attendant disadvantages conferred by the fatherless homes. Many men I see day in and day out have never known a father in the the wake of this revolution that brought freedom. And has been excruciatingly well documented by social scientists for many decades The New York Times recently published an article exposing 4,000 lonely deaths a week with many elderly in Japan dying and catch this not being found until days later when the stench met other people. And you say, well, how does that connect with the sexual revolution? We have so individualized people and that intimate act of sexuality that we have actually separated family units and left people alone and vulnerable and lonely. In addition, people increasingly believe pornography is a harmless activity. But the evidence shows the damages are legion. Pornography is frequently cited as a factor in divorce cases. I can testify to seeing that. Therapists cite increasing demand for treatment for it, including in children. Now catch this. One reality that hit me with the Me Too movement was that the men that so long had claimed to champion sexual liberation and equality, claiming to be pro-women and pro-abortion, actually used it to exploit and objectify women all along. This is not a revolution that brought any kind of freedom. It enslaved us. In other words, if you look at the evidence, not even looking at this theologically, it shows that it is not good for Joseph not to run. See, Paul, I believe this morning, offers us some spiritual reasons, though, for why we must flee from spiritual temptation and sin. Now, we're in the middle of our series, Temptation, Know Your Enemy, Know Your Friend. We'll see this this morning in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20. If you're not already there, you can turn there. We're going to be there a lot this morning. 
And and as we go through this, Paul is telling Corinthians that they too should flee sexual immorality. That has not received its shelf date yet. We still need to run. Now we've been using the updated version of John Owen's definition of temptation throughout this series. You'll remember that he says that temptation is anything, state, way, or condition that entices and draws the mind and heart of a person away from uh, obedience to God towards sin in any degree. Now, a quick reading of the book of 1 Corinthians, just to catch you up to speed. It leaves you feeling uh, a little bit like Paul's almost arranged this book around all of the multitude of issues that were dividing this church, including, but not limited to, their favorite preachers, status, even spiritual gifts were used to separate them. And it's not listed there, but I'm pretty sure that they would have even been divided over the question of boxers or briefs. I mean, anything that could have separated or divided them, it divided them. They formed cliques and fractions that fought against one another. Now, from a worldly position, it makes sense. I mean, you just think about the nature of Corinth. Rome had repopulated this port city of Corinth with military veterans and people from all over the world looking to make a name for themselves. Now, it sounds a lot like our Phoenix metro area where I still find it exotic to meet a native. So many people that you meet day in and day out are not from Phoenix. And it would have been the same in Corinth. And just like Phoenix, there was a staunch individualism that ruled them. See, they face temptations of every sort, but this morning, as we are diving into fighting sexual temptation, uh, we are going to find that they were uh, all around them in Corinth, and Paul needed to address the way that they thought about temptations, including sexual temptation. In fact, you might notice in verses 9 to 11, just before the text that we're about to look at, that it is warning against a number of sins, including a list of sexual sins. And Paul says, "I, I want to remind you that those that practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we're confronted with a division in our text this morning, specifically over the nature of the body. Some people, it seems, were teaching that the body did not matter, the spirit mattered. We find this throughout. In fact, commentators really believe that that verse 12, that first line that you see, is actually a slogan that some professing Christians were rallying around to justify sexual relationships specifically with prostitutes. And it's compelling because it's partly true. They said all things are lawful. In fact, they probably got that from Paul himself. It reminds me a little bit of Galatians 5.1, where Paul there says it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. You'll remember that Malachi showed us how Satan can twist Scripture in Psalm 91 to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. And I'm reminded here, again, of the seductive nature of the way that Satan uses Scripture when it comes to sexual sin. And the way that Satan can pervert the Scriptures to justify it. That can happen in our own hearts. See, Greeks had a very low view of the body. They didn't see the body as being as significant as the spirit. So if you look at the Stoics or the Cynics or, or the Gnostics later, they saw the body as part of the material world and not as important. And it seems that they, they kind of coupled this with another thing, uh, which is that all things are lawful to kind of justify their sexual sins with prostitutes. Have you ever found yourself facing temptation and in your heart found yourself actually looking to Scriptures to justify each, either the sin or make it maybe not seem so bad? 
And in your own heart, it's almost like objectively you're going, I know this isn't right, but it's just really compelling right now. I believe it's a satanic work. And that's specifically what Paul takes aim at here. But in, in doing so, notice he lays out one of the most important arguments for the value and worth of the human body in the Bible. Now, our big idea this morning is this. If you're taking notes, a good thing to write down. It's that we will see this unfold. It's that to flee sexual immorality, we need to flee sexual immorality because Jesus is Lord of our bodies. We need to flee sexual immorality because Jesus is Lord of our bodies. And he's going to unpack this in a number of different ways. He's going to show that Christians are to flee sexual morality because God redeemed us at the cross, because the Spirit indwells you as his temple, and because our resurrected Christ is going to return to raise up our bodies. Uh, Our bodies are something that is central to the gospel. Well, before we begin, let's pray this morning. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning, as we are about to jump into this text, Father, we are talking about something that is uh, so important to the creation that you have made. Uh, You have created us as beings who have been called to multiply and fill the earth. And Father, you have created us uh, for the purpose of making much of your name. You have created marriage for your glory and sex as part of that union between one man and one woman for their whole lives until death do them part. And so, Father, as we come this morning, I know that uh, this is a sin that has uh, an especially powerful pull on uh, most, if not all of us. And so, Father, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, speak into our lives, that you would help us to be faithful in this area, that you would help us to truly believe that Jesus is for our bodies and our bodies are for Jesus. It's in the great name of your Son that we do pray. Amen. So the first thing we see this morning is this. The resurrection means your body is for the Lord in verses 12 to 14. The resurrection means your body is for the Lord. Now, commentators believe that Paul's addressing a group of Christians who are using Paul's own words to justify sexual sin. Now, hang in with me. Subtle differences. Sometimes subtle differences in meaning can make a substantial difference in both our lives now and forever. And when it comes to theology... We need to be really clear and careful in the way that we are thinking about the truth of who God is, and we do that by looking to the Word of God. That's why we need to listen closely and carefully here to what Paul is doing. He is, I believe, ushering in a significant nuance and precision to what he means by all things are lawful. He's going to say this is what it means and this is what it doesn't mean. So hang in with me. Here's what he says in verses 12 to 14. He says this, all things are lawful for me. I think he's speaking of what they are saying, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise up by us by his power. Now, Paul offers first a couple of nuances. Notice first, he says, Christian freedom should not be focused, it should be focused outward, not inward. So Paul says, freedom ought to be exercised to benefit and bless, not gratify the flesh. The aim of the Christian ought to be the the glory of God and 
the good of others. That, that's one. If you're thinking about Christian liberty, uh, first you need to recognize that it means that we are seeking with our liberty to be a blessing to others and to glorify God. Second, notice that he warns that an exercise in freedom could actually enslave you. Did you see that? He says, I will not be dominated by anything, including all the lawful things. So your, your heart, you've you probably heard it before, that it, it can take things that are good and do bad things with them. Now, there's that famous quote that, say, that says, good gifts make bad gods. And I think this is supported here. See, Paul is saying good gifts can make bad gods. In other words, that thing that you love and are freed to do could actually become a god that wields control over you, over your life. So you're free to drink alcohol. But some are enslaved to it, and they wreck their lives with it. Now, now listen close. I haven't ever met a strong person. I have not met a strong person yet without some weakness. Some area that they are weak in. They might be a strong person, but there is some area where they are weak. And I've never met the person that is strong that doesn't need to be protected against weakness for the sake of Christian liberty. We all need to be aware of the ways that we are weak. Strong people need to know their weaknesses. It might seem like Paul gets distracted in verse 13 by his stomach as he moves on. But I think the quote in verse 13 is actually connected to all of 12 to 14. In other words, he's not just thinking to himself, man, I have been writing for six chapters and I need to make an in and out run. Let me talk about my stomach. It's grumbling right now. No, he's saying, you know what? I, I think that there's a way that they're speaking about the stomach that actually is not understanding the nature of the body rightly. And I want to address it. And so in verse 13, he quotes them. But I believe that the quotation marks actually should probably contain a little bit more in this text. Uh, I believe that the, the quotation mark should actually encompass what I think is their whole quote, which would say this. They were saying, Paul would say, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Because in the end, God doesn't care about the body like he cares about the spirit. See, those with a low view of the body said food is a, a good il illustration of the body and the material world. Food goes in the digestive system as food, and it comes out as something else, waste, right? And, and so they're saying this isn't like a, a good thing. It's unlike the spiritual world, which is uh, more ideal and perfect and good. So sex takes place in the body and not the spirit, so sex is part of this world, like food in the stomach, and it has no effect on spiritual life, so you can do what you like in the body. Now, Paul responds to this claim in verses, the rest of verse 13 and 14, and this is how he responds. He says this, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the, uh, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So check it out. Paul says the past bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ and the future promised resurrection of God's people should ground our present sexual ethics. Have you ever thought about that? The resurrection of Jesus Christ bodily from the dead has implications for the way that we ought to understand sex. Paul says you should be thinking about this. In other words, evidently, God cares about what is done in the body. He values it. He values it more than the Greeks do. 
And in 1 Corinthians 10.31, uh, Paul goes on to add, and by the way, I mean, if you want to work from sex back, uh, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do in the body, we are to do it all to what? The glory of God. Everything is for the glory of God. We are whole beings, physical and spiritual. Now, the same is true of sex. The doctrine of the bodily resurrection separates the Christian God from the gods of the nations. Do you see it? When it comes to sex, God has shown that the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. And Jesus is Lord. He's speaking of Jesus. Uh, If you read the first 10 verses of 1 Corinthians, you'll find that six of them speak of Jesus as Lord. I don't want you to miss this. I'm going to talk about the Lord throughout. Jesus is Lord. So I highlight here that Jesus is Lord, so Jesus is for the body, and your body is for Jesus. Did you know that? Your body is more for Jesus than your body is for you. And the best way that you can expect and understand and value your body is by living for Jesus rather than your own selfish desires. Now, how do we know that Jesus is for the body? Well, we know it because Jesus came and took on flesh, didn't he? He didn't just come as a hologram. Uh, Anybody that has claimed that in the past, and that has been claimed, has been called a heretic. Why? Because Christians believe that Jesus came in the flesh bodily for us. He faced every temptation in the body, including sexual temptation, and yet obeyed his Father even to the point of facing a bodily death on the cross. Three days later, he was raised bodily from the dead and witnessed, that was witnessed by over 500 In fact, if you want to see that list of people that saw Jesus raised bodily from the dead, go to 1 Corinthians 15, and he will tell you about all the people who saw Jesus visibly raised from the dead. 500 at one time, he mentions. So there's a real sense in which Jesus has shown that he was for the body. Why would he do that if he was not for our bodies? If not, he would not have needed to trouble himself with being crucified in the body or being raised bodily from the dead as a picture of the future hope that every believer that follows him has. Not only that, we see that the body is for the Lord. Not only is the Lord shown that he is for the body, the body is for the Lord. Uh, we see this as well. We, we will not be dominated by anything that we are free to do. That's what Paul says. But as Christians... We have been redeemed or bought, and we're going to see this in a minute, so that Christian liberty doesn't only speak of what we've been purchased from, giving us freedom from those things, but what we've been purchased to, which is the Lord of our life, Jesus Christ. In other words, there is a change of ownership, and we'll see that in a moment, that has happened in this purchase, so that not only is the Lord for our bodies, but our bodies are for the Lord. Paul says Jesus purchased our whole being at the cross, body and spirit, and the future resurrection will apply to our whole beings, body and spirit. This is what Christians believe. If you're here this morning and you're a non-Christian and you're visiting us and you're joining us, uh, let me just say that we are so grateful to have you. Um, We're we're always grateful to have people that we love come and hear the truth about the gospel. Um, But part of the gospel message uh, means that we actually understand ourselves as living under the kingship of Jesus Christ. And so as we do that, what our hope is that we are actually living out of convictions about what Jesus has said and at the same time not being bigots. That is not our goal. Uh, we, we do not feel good when we come, go home at nights and think about all the people that we have offended. Um, that's not what it means to be a Christian. Maybe you've met Christians that way. I apologize. That's not us. 
But if you're here this morning and you hear something that you don't like, I hope you know that it's not because uh, we made this stuff up, but because we are actually submitting to Jesus, who we believe our bodies are for, that our bodies are for Jesus and Jesus is for our bodies, and he is king of our lives. And I want you to know that your first and great need this morning is we are talking about sexual sin and sexual temptation. Uh, our great and first desire is not just to immediately change all of your b- bad behaviors and tell you about what a loser you are. Uh, our first and primary goal is for you to see that the great thing that all of us need and lack is relationship with Jesus Christ. That means that each of us need to turn from sin to living for Jesus and putting our faith and confidence in him. And all of us, all of us, none of us are saved because of our own righteousness, but only because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Every person in this room, my guess is, has or will struggle with sexual temptation and sexual sin against God. But what we find in the gospel is, is that God has called us to something better. He has called us to live for King Jesus and the desires of that good king rather than our own selfish desires. So that's our great desire for you this morning, that you would turn from living for yourself to living for Christ. And once that happens, we believe everything must change. It doesn't begin or end with our sexuality, but that is part of the package of what it means to repent and turn to Christ. It means every area of our lives must turn to Jesus Christ as King. Now, I know that you probably have heard that there are many Christians, many even on TV, that say that you can love Jesus and do whatever you want with your body. Now, that is not something that we as a congregation believe. In other words, there are some that would say Jesus wouldn't want you to run from sexual immorality and temptation. He would want you to run to it because if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. But catch what Paul says. This is the Bible. He says, The good news of Jesus dying for your sins and being raised from the dead bodily means that Jesus is not only the Lord of your body on the last day when he comes back to save you from the just wrath of God that we all deserve. He's actually the Lord of your body today and every day because of that event. So you might say with Lady Gaga, I was born this way and God doesn't make mistakes. He gave me these desires so it must be okay. But the Bible says that we were born as rebels. That's the Bible's perspective of humanity. All of us born as rebels against God in many ways, including sexual temptation and sin. And so most, if not all of us, can confess this morning sinful desires in this area, maybe even today that we are fighting. But don't miss this. I'm not saying that fleeing sexual temptation is just hard. You might be thinking to yourself, it seems like you're just asking me to do something really hard if I want to be a Christian. I'm actually saying that it's impossible apart from God's saving and sanctifying grace. The thing that I'm telling you that God is calling to you is actually something that is impossible on your own. What we believe as a body is that you actually need the grace of God to rain down on you as it rained down on us. It is a a change of heart that you need, a change of loves. And that only happens through the power of the Holy Spirit and the hearing of the gospel. See, resisting temptation requires the moment-by-moment help of the Lord of our bodies. So if we don't put our faith in Christ and become Christians, we will need to submit our whole lives, including our desires, to him. Now here's the good news. Those of us who do that, we are told in 1 John 1, 9, that when we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I had a man who came into my office just a, few, uh, just a couple years ago and he confessed a lifelong, of sin, lifelong life of sin, many decades. And he went through just like all of these, 
these episodes that he felt good, and he, he wept over his sin. And he said, I just can't believe that God could forgive me. And I got to break down in tears, but they weren't tears of sorrow. They were tears of joy. Because I just realized and sensed afresh the beauty of the gospel that ushers in forgiveness and this truth and this reality that when we confess our sins to Jesus, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of every bit of unrighteousness. It doesn't matter how much is in the U-Haul. God cleans it out. That's what he does because of what his son has done at the cross. So my encouragement is that you really truly can be born again. God will meet you with his grace where you submit to him. He has done that with me. He has done that with us. He will do that with you. But there's another thing that we see here. Second, that Paul explains how your body is for the Lord. Your body is for the Lord. And he shows how this applies specifically to visiting prostitutes in verses 15 to 17. Now listen close to how Paul applies his understanding of the value of our bodies to a particular sexual sin with broader implications for us. See, Paul makes a powerful argument here against visiting prostitutes based on the resurrection. Here's what he says. Look with me again at verses 15 through 17. This is what he says. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Now, Paul is making a, a tight argument here. He has two unions in mind. The union every individual Christian has with Christ. That's one. And then the union between a man and a woman who have sexual relationship. Now, first, Paul argues that the body, too, of every individual believer is a member of Christ himself. There is an ownership that Christ has of the body, not just the spirit, through the gospel. See, we're not only united with Christ in spirit, the bodily resurrection of Jesus demonstrate that Jesus is for our whole being, body, and spirit. So he's saying that if we have been united to Christ by faith, our whole beings are united to Christ and under his lordship. Now he's, he's not trying to get weird with this and say that right now, you know, you're, you've become some kind of Siamese twin with Jesus, right? He's just saying that Jesus is for your body. Now Gordon Fee writing of this says, The body of the believer is for the Lord because through Christ's resurrection, God has set in motion the reality of our own resurrection. So our bodies will be raised on the last day because we are joined to Christ who is raised bodily from the dead. So our reality and our identity is wrapped up with Christ's bodily resurrection. So Paul asks, knowing that, should you take your body, which is Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Now Paul answers it for us uh, just quickly. So just in case you're confused on that, never. Okay, We don't endorse prostitution here. Not good. Like, serious. Don't do that stuff. But how did Paul get to the place where sex with a prostitute means to join a member of Christ with a prostitute? Well, he quotes from Genesis again. Genesis 2.24. And he's quoting from there in verse 16. Now, you'll remember in Genesis 2.24, it's where God is highlighting the union between a man and a woman in that relationship. 
And in that text, as he's unfolding it, he's showing how this union is something special and significant. Now, there in Genesis 2, you remember that Eve is created from the rib of Adam. And when God presents her to Adam, he says, this is flesh of my flesh. And I'm guessing he was pretty excited, right? I've got a woman who is like me. This is, this is a good day. She's beautiful. Uh, this is, creation's better now. This is flesh of my flesh. But it's followed in verse 24 by this saying, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, Paul appeals here in 1 Corinthians 6 to Genesis 2.24 to show how sexual intercourse unites two bodies into a new one flesh relationship that takes priority over every other earthly relationship, even that with a father and a mother. In other words, God created sex for the context of marriage between one man and one woman as long as the two shall live. Two bodies or, or, or whole individual persons become one flesh in the eyes of the Lord. Now, even though one flesh means more than the physical body, it doesn't mean less. Do you hear that? Even though one flesh theologically means more than just the body, Paul here is emphasizing it doesn't mean less than that. There's a bodily sort of coming together in that as you were joining together as two bodied people, embodied people. So to join oneself to a prostitute as a Christian is to disobey Christ who you were joined with. See, this would mean that a Christian would unite his body with a person who was not a member of Christ and not destined for the coming promised resurrection. Verse 17 may seem a little strange, like he's jumping back on his whole argument, where it says, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. But if Paul emphasizes the body's significance, you might ask, why is it that he's switching back to becoming one in spirit with Jesus here? Why wouldn't he say one in body? I think it's because our union to the resurrected Christ at this point is a spiritual union with with bodily implications for both today and the last day. So we obey obey Christ as Lord today. We look forward to Christ raising up our bodies on that last day. And all of God's people are united by the Holy Spirit to God. Now, brothers and sisters, Paul is speaking here of a special kind of sin. Laying with prostitutes, which is a sin that they were dealing with. I don't think that our congregation, this would be the, the first thing that Paul would speak to us about. In our culture, where we're at right now, you might be listening to this and thinking to yourself, well, maybe you're thinking this has nothing to do with you because you've never seen a prostitute, never gone to a prostitute, and maybe don't think you know anybody who has. But don't forget the broader implications here. See, just before these verses, in verses, you remember the prior verses that we read, Paul communicated that there is a relationship between inheriting the kingdom of God and your sexuality. That's what he began with. In fact, in verse 9, Paul says, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor dunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He began with that before jumping into this particular instance. Do you see it? Our our lives today say something about our last day. Now, if Jesus is king of our lives on the last day, it means that he's also king of our lives today. Do you feel the force of that? That Jesus is the Lord of your life today. 
That he is sovereign over you right now. Not just when he shows up in all of his glory on the last day. And our lives should be lived as though they are lived before the king who lives and stands before us. See, if Jesus is king of our lives on the last day, he's king of our lives today. And sexual immorality is something that we need to submit, we need to to seek before the face of God to run from. Now, sexual immorality, this word is actually a word that comes from the Greek pornea. It's a word that we use for porn or pornography. That's where we get the root from. And, And that word can include a host of sexual sins in the Greek. But I think in our culture, what we found is is that we actually have an epidemic of pornography, images that we find via media. In fact, a recent Gallup poll shows that 43% of Americans have actually shifted and changed their views towards pornography. Our our culture is viewing it differently. The, the, The friends that our kids are going to school with, the people that we are working with, They don't see things the way that they might have seen things, say, decades ago. Or at least they can't talk about them with the freedom that they do today. But today, Gallup polls are showing that 43% of Americans actually think that pornography is acceptable. But it's even worse if you look at young men. 67% of 18 to 49-year-old men think that it is acceptable. There was another research that was done by Barna and by Covenant Eyes. Uh, They have uh, a certain app that you can use to protect your computer and your phones from pornography. But they found in their surveys that 68% of church-going men and over 50% of pastors view porn on a regular basis. Now, I I don't know that that's true if you were to take all of them in the world and if you were to talk about who really loves Jesus and who doesn't and all that kind of stuff. Like, I don't know if it would, it would pan out that way. But to have those kinds of statistics makes you fearful for others, doesn't it? Many of these numbers escalated incredibly with the arrival of the smartphone. Now, they showed how percentages jumped 10 and 20 points, percentage points, as soon as we had mobile phones that made it more accessible. It's dangerous. And don't miss this. Viewing porn is sin, but it also tempts towards other greater sins. If you study the the repercussions of this, uh, you'll find that studies show that it does all kinds of things. It isolates you. People who are lonely and view this, think that it's going to make them less lonely, but it leaves them lonelier. We find that it it sears consciences. People that continually expose themselves to this, it actually makes them numb to the consequences and the depths of sin that they've committed. It makes relating to embodied people, and especially those that they might usually be attracted to, difficult. Because they tend to begin to objectify people rather than seeing them as image bearers of the living God. They become objects to be used and abused rather than image bearers of their maker. You objectify image bearers without intending to. There was a book that was, that's called Wired for Intimacy. We might still have it in the bookstall. But you might be thinking to yourself, you know, this is a sin that's like, it's not in the body, like, I don't, like, I'm not touching anybody, so it's okay and so it doesn't really have physical effects. But in Wired to, for Intimacy, what, what's interesting is they did a neurological study to show that when you're actually engaging in this, your brain actually begins to create new neurological pathways, fast lanes, that make it hard for you to have a healthy intimacy with another person. It, it, it really actually physiologically messes with you in the same way that drugs can, any other addiction can. 
So there's a, a real little, literal physiological evidence that our spiritual lives and our thought lives actually are connected to our bodies in a way that we can't control even though we think we can. If you're single, it can actually make getting married more difficult and increase the likelihood of premarital sex and sexuality. If you are married, it causes the alienation of your spouse, increases possibilities of divorce, increases possibilities of infidelity. This is an epidemic. This is killing our families. This is leaving homes without fathers and mothers. So how do we fight something like this? There's hope. There's hope in the gospel. How do we fight something like this? Well, first and foremost, obviously, we need to make sure that we have trusted Christ for salvation. He is alone the one who gives us his spirit, who can give us a new heart, who can make us love the things that he loves. And one of the things that we know is evident when we are loving things that are sinful is that we need a heart that is changed to love what God loves. We need to seek Christ. We need, second, to say with Job 31.1 that I have made a covenant with mine eyes not to look lustfully on a young woman or a man or whatever it is that is tempting you. We need to actually be strategic in the way that we pursue that. Or third, we need to bring another respected Christian into the conversation, an elder or a brother or a sister of the same sex. Share when and how it's happening. Pray, read through Scripture. Their sins grow in the dark and they always multiply. We also have, of course, our Hope for Addictions classes here that Jim Hughes uh, leads, and he would be happy, he's one of our elders, he'd be happy to, to help you or to point you in the right direction. Fourth, get rid of your smartphone if you struggle at all with this. I would just say that if you have any struggle with this, if you find this as a struggle at all, just get rid of your smartphone. Uh, It's not helpful. It's not going to be helpful. Um, I had a young man one time who I I started working through with this. Um, He was taking it seriously. He had a support group. He had a smartphone. Uh, I said, look, let's just try to be faithful. If this doesn't work, you know, let's get rid of that. Uh, he came in and he brought one day his smartphone and he dropped it on my desk and he said, I don't need this anymore. Would you just hold on to this for me? And he said, I'm, I'm getting rid of my smartphone. I think, it's pro- I'm, I think it's probably the smartest thing I've ever done. He said, I think that a dumb phone is what's best for me and what's smart for me right now. And that brother has been such a testimony of faith. I have tons of respect to him to this day for the way that he intentionally fought that. Fifth, meditate on the greatness of Jesus Christ. Colossians, a great book to do this. A book where half the verses speak of Jesus' name literally. And fifth, you can read a couple of books, Finally Free by Heath Lambert and Wired for Intimacy by William Struthers. See, why would we do these things? Why would we fight in this way? Why would we flee? Why would we run? Well, it's because Paul says it is still a good idea to flee sexual temptation in verses 18 to 20. Paul says you need to run like Joseph. So third, run from sexual temptation. Look what he says here in verses 18 to 20. He says this. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body, do you not know that your own body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. What a beautiful text. Paul says, the posture of a Christian towards sexual immorality is that of flight. 
We run and flee. We don't sit and hide or stoop and coddle temptation and sexual sin. We flee Satan and he will flee from us. We run to God and he will run to us. See, we need to run like Joseph. But catch this. Here Paul is is actually adding a final argument with two strong reasons. He says, you are a consecrated people. Don't miss this. God has set you apart to be used for his purposes. In the same way that the temple was brought together by materials that God himself asked them to bring together for his glory to build a house for him. He says, you are my people who have been built to be house for me so that I might make my glory known in you. You have been consecrated. You are not common. Do not act like you are a common people. You are consecrated to the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you need to run remembering who you are. Brothers and sisters, do you remember who you are this morning in Christ? Have you forgotten the price that has been paid for you? God loved you so much, he gave the blood of his one-of-a-kind son for you, to bring you to himself. The cost was the blood of the son that he loved eternally and without measure. And he said, that is not too much to pay for a people for myself. And this is the argument that Paul is using that should send us into flight. It's remember who you are in Christ. See, Paul says sexual immorality is unique because one sins against his own body while the other sins are outside of the body. I don't think that Paul is saying that other sins are not significant or that they are not in some ways in the body. I think he's just talking about the unique nature of sexual intimacy and the way that God created as part of this pinnacle of creation in humanity. See, Paul's purpose in this wording is to set apart the unique way that sexual sin unites one person to another. Paul's pointing to the the covenantal significance of the act of sex and asks, do you understand the implications of this? Do you know what you're doing? He gives two reasons not to commit sexual sin after this. He says, these are both reasons that display how our bodies are for the Lord. You remember, our bodies are for the Lord, the Lord is for our bodies. He said, let me give you just two more reasons that our bodies are for the Lord and how we know this. First, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Christian, did you know this? Your, your, Your body... A temple for the Holy Spirit of God. Think about it. God once met with Israel in a temple that screamed out to the people to come close, but don't get too close. You stay behind the curtain in the Holy of Holies. You need to stop right there or you will die. Now Paul, New Testament, Jesus raised from the dead. He says this. The Holy Spirit dwells in you, Christian. Gentiles were not allowed to get close. Here he speaks to Gentiles and he says, you've become the place where the Holy Spirit dwells, where I'm going to make my glory known. It's a new day. Don't desecrate the place where God meets with man in your body as evidenced by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And second, notice that he says, you were bought with a price. Now, this speaks of redemption. God redeemed or purchased a people for himself. He redeemed Israel out of Egypt from their bondage to sin and slavery, out of their their slavery to the Pharaoh. Of course, this image of redemption does come from slave image 
free like that. When a slave was purchased, he was not truly free. He was simply under a new ownership. That's usually what happened. See, the true nature of liberation had as much to do in this context with the nature of the master who owned you after as before. There's a a change of ownership that's going on in redemption. You once were under bondage to sin, death, and the devil. Now there's there's a new officer in town, isn't there? It's Jesus Christ as Lord, and he is good, and he is life-giving. He is not death-giving. He is one who leads us into holiness and happiness, not sin and sorrow. In fact, Anthony Thistleton, in his commentary writing on this, says that the transaction which involved a price here enacts not freedom but a change of ownership. That's what's being highlighted. We are gods. Our bodies are for God. In other words, when it comes to, to sexual morals, we have been purchased by Christ and under new ownership. Christ paid the great price to purchase us out from under all kinds of things and the sorrows that come with them and the death that it leads to. He has brought us under his reign and his rule. He freed from sin, death, and the devil to the reign of Christ as king of our lives. Catch this. Brothers, let me just encourage you. Know that you have been consecrated by God for his purposes and for his glory. If you are in Christ, you have been made for something far more than your own attempts in your heart to make significance of yourself. You've been created by God to make much of his name. You have been made for something far more than you realize. And not only that, when we are thinking about women, we need to realize that these are women who have been made in the image of God and set apart for his glory. Would you want to mess with God's consecrated stuff? I wouldn't. I'd want to honor that in the way that God has honored that. And brothers, that's the image that God is giving us for the way that we should view women. And women, the same thing goes for the way that you view men. They have been consecrated and set apart for the glory of God if they are in Christ. And that is the way that you should view them and see them. And not only that, if you are single and you are looking for a spouse, don't you want a person who has that kind of life trajectory and hope? Someone that actually believes and lives out of the the conviction that they have been consecrated and set apart for something far more than what the world thinks they have been set apart for. They have been set apart for Jesus, by Jesus, believing that our bodies are for the Lord and the Lord is for our bodies. Don't you want to live life with that kind of person? That's what Paul says. Isn't that beautiful? See, Paul would say, run, Joseph, run. Run. Run to the glory of Jesus Christ. Because your body is for Jesus and Jesus is for your body. The way is narrow. And we need to run, brothers and sisters, for the kingdom of heaven. So let grace ignite and fuel our flights. If we really know Christ, then we will learn to run. Brothers and sisters, flee sexual immorality because Jesus is Lord of our bodies. We are to flee sexual immorality because God redeemed us at the cross. Because the Spirit indwells our bodies as his temple. And because our resurrected Christ will return to raise up our bodies on that last day. Amen. Let's pray.